This is me, a smaller star. It's not bad. I was in such great movies as My Dinner with Dodge and also other movies I can't think of right now. Alright, bye Wallace. <laughs> no, you can't stop me. <laughs> I think we're breaking up. I can't, I can't quite hear you. Get out of here, you scamp. No, don't push me out the window. So welcome to Project Day Plus. My name's Hugh, your name's Hunter. What are we doing on this week's episode? Uh, we're going to do uh, three movies. We'll probably do more than that. Three We'll talk about three movies. We'll talk about some pizza. We'll talk about the box office. What was our... We'll talk about Meals of the Day. Don't forget uh, that. Yes. Reels on Meals. Reels on Meals. <laughs> Reels on Meals. And, and... Drag on forever. We'll close the show, as always, since last week. Yeah. So, we're talking about three films this week. Numero Uno. Which is a great new Italian film that's just come out. The Spirit of the B.I. Number two. Abbas Karastami's Taste of Terry. Number three. That same Karastami's Ten. Those are the three movies we're going to talk about. Now, Hugh, I did not write any synopsis for any of the films. Did you do that for any of them? Well, fortunately for you, I anticipated the fact that you might not write anything, and I decided to also not do anything. Great. So we're on the same level, so you, don't, you won't make me look bad. That's right. No more than you will do so yourself. Well, you won't, won't make each other look bad. Um, but I, I would suggest that you definitely handle the taste of cherry, because I've only seen it the one time, which was a while ago. Okay. I mean, it's not like there's that much plot to it, so... No, but uh, you'll, you'll, you, can, you can sort of leave that discussion because you've just freshly watched it. Sure, I watched it yesterday, in fact. Okay, uh, so I guess we should start, as we always start, with uh, the great film that we do as the main segment, which is, in this case, is... Uh, what's his name? Victor Ursi? Victor Arise. Arise, okay. Something like that is the pronunciation <laughs> that I gleaned from some of the extras. I didn't watch any of the extras on this one, so... Although th- I should have listened to how Guillermo del Toro pronounced it, but uh, I didn't go back and do that. But I did hear how Kristen Thompson pronounced it, and I'm assuming she did some research, so... Why, why was Kristen, Kristen Thompson talking about it? It was just one of the extras on Criterion. That sounds very... that's random. I mean, she's kind of boring, as Bordwell and Thompson typically are, but nonetheless... Yes. That's that's their speciality is being boring. Yeah, I hate I hated their film textbooks in um, cinema studies. Do you still do them? Do they are they still set texts in uh, in your field? No, I I, haven't, I I think I had to read one of their books once, but I didn't read it. I was supposed to read it, but I didn't. The main one we had was observations on film art. Yeah, yeah, that's that's their typical one. But their their videos are extremely boring. They sap the joy of cinema. That type of perspective. Uh, and that style of film analysis makes me hate cinema whenever I experience it. So. It also makes you feel like I'm, I am i don't want to watch movies ever again. If that's the apex of, um, of watching films, then you know, I'm ready to stop. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. But we're not, gonna, we're not here to talk about Boardwell and Thompson being boring. We're here to talk about... <laughs> yes, we are. That's all I've got. I'll, maybe I'll save it for my segment later. Um, no, we're here to talk about Spirit of the Beehive. Uh, Hugh, do you want to set this one up? Do you want me to set it up? Uh, before we get to Spirit of the Beehive, we need to 
talk about our meals. Reels on meals on reels on meals on reels. Reels on meals on reels on meals on reels. Uh, so once again, <laughs> being as it's only 11:10 uh, a.m. in Melbourne, um, I have only had breakfast thus far. And my breakfast is similar to last week, though not exactly the same. Uh, in fact, only one element is the same from last week, uh, if we're being specific. And that element is, I used generic spread, mm-hmm. but the bread was different. So this week it was uh, some Polish rye, and uh, the condiment was also different. Mm-hmm. So instead of uh, Marmite, uh, as, as last week, I've used uh, Vegemite mm-hmm. this morning. Okay. And I had three, three, three pieces of toast. Wow. I mean, then then cut into six. Wow. So, but originally three full bits of bread. Wow, that's all I bread. It's because it was the last three in the packet. I didn't just want to leave one bit of bread, so I thought mm. I'd have them all. Usually I have two. Mm. Today is extra special. I had three. How about you, sir? Well, you, I'm so glad that you asked. I started my morning with a cup of English breakfast tea, accompanied by a slice of toast that had, on which... Raspberry jelly had been slathered. Nice. Then at 11 o'clock I had my lunch, which consisted of a Greek-style farro salad, which had farro, cucumber, cherry tomatoes, red onion, um, feta cheese, cheddar cheese, uh, arugula, and kamada olives, all mixed together within a Greek salad dressing, and also had a piece of um, garlic bread along with that. That was my lunch. Wow. And then a mere hour ago, I ate my dinner, which consisted of some leftover Thai food, and that's it. What sort of Thai food? Pad Thai, specifically. Chicken Pad Thai. Okay. Yeah. Good stuff. And? Why the early lunch? That's what time I have to eat lunch at work. What time do you start work? I start work at nine thirty, but that is when the that is when the children eat lunch, and I have to eat then. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, just on the point you made, not really a point, but, but uh, just to follow up on your uh, lunch, which included feta. Mm. There is currently feta news in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know how you can't name something champagne unless it actually comes from the champagne region in France or whatever. Yeah, whatever. There's, there's that silly, figures. yeah, that's silly nonsense. They're trying to do the same thing as part of Australia's agreement with the EU with uh, feta and some other cheese products as well. So that's that's funny. Does Australia produce a lot of feta cheese? Probably. That's dumb. Uh, all right, that's reels on meals. Another great segment. So now let's move on to Le Spirit of the Beehive. Spirit of the Beehive. So Spirit of the Beehive is a 1973 Spanish drama film directed by Victor Arise. I got that from Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. What's it about? A beehive? Uh, So it's set in a uh, small rural village in, uh, was it Catalonia? In Spain? Yes. No, not Catalonia. In the uh, Castilian Plateau. Uh-huh. On the Castilian Plateau, I think, what is what you say. Yes. 
but so it's set in this this small little village. Um, it's in the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War. Um, nothing is explicated directly in the narrative, but that is the context. Mm-hmm. And uh, we focus largely around a family, and specifically around uh, the daughters of the family, and specifically among the daughters, the younger daughter, Anna. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't have that much of a story, mm-hmm. but uh, it broadly follows a screening of Frankenstein. Yes. That uh, enraptures the aforementioned young girl, Anna, who has uh, difficulty distinguishing between uh, reality and fiction. And uh, it sort of uh, captures her imagination and her sister tells her that there is a spirit of, of Frankenstein that lives in, in the village um, that she's able to summon. Mm. And uh, we get some stuff that happens. A uh, little kid, uh, they, they go to like an abandoned well mm-hmm. and building. Um, they, uh, Anna meets a uh, freedom fighter who uh, from the losing side of the war. Yes, specifically the Civil War. I said the Civil War at the start, so our listeners would be able to infer. I, I was not. I was. I was not paying attention. I did like. Uh, Does that surprise you? And uh, so, yeah. What else happens? Anything else? Um, Frankenstein. The uh, let's talk about the rest of the family. So the dad is like uh, has a beehive, <laughs> hence the title. Yeah. Um. And uh, we should talk about the how mother, they sort of interpolate Frankenstein into their like ima- imaginary games, right? I've said I've said the spirit stuff. That's all right. Okay. <laughs> well, if you think it's fine, then I think we're done. Okay, moving on. Uh, okay, so that's Spirit of the Beehive. Now, uh, this is Victor Arise's debut film. Mm. He only directed three features. Not exactly a prolific director. He's made three. In his lifetime, um, among some short films, but only three full features to date. He's still alive today. He, he looks fairly fit and healthy as well. He could certainly direct another <laughs> film, Lazy. Victor, lazy. if you're listening, pick up that, that clapboard. Get out there. You can still do it. Uh, what did you make of The Spirit of the Beehive, comrade? Oh, you. Yeah. I gotta say, this film was good. I really, I really liked it a lot. Yeah, it's very good. It reminded me a lot of uh, some Terrence Malick films that I love. I think it worked a lot on that level with the, the more, um, I guess, direct political through line than many of Malick's films have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it has a great sense of haunted atmosphere. Uh, Indeed. And I think it is... Uh, beautiful, uh, mesmerizing film in the way that it captures the particulars of the Spanish village. Uh, I really enjoy the way it sort of goes in and out of this child's POV. I think it has uh, two pretty remarkable child performances in it. And there's just a, an elegance and an enigmatic tone of this film that I find irresistible. It's one of my favorite qualities in movies that only... Only movies, I think, can conjure for me. And I, I really love this film a lot. Um, so you'd say it has an elusive quality. It, it's almost like it was spirited 
away. Um, elusive quality, by the way, is film critic for I don't know. No, I, I mean, like, I, I think I said enigmatic quality. I know, but I was rephrasing it. Yeah, it, rephrasing it to make me sound stupid. But no, I'm not. I don't. <laughs> I don't think. I don't mean it as like I don't understand the images that are pretty for it. I think it is deliberately know, I'm trying just to. Being, I'm just being an idiot. Yeah, you fucking wow, you cock. Um, I had that written down, uh, independent of your comments. Now, um, it's one of those things that that occurs to me to say, but then when I uh, interrogate it, I don't know what that actually means. But anyway, um, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I I think this is uh, you know, I was somewhat reluctant to watch it for whatever reason. I guess because it's in Spanish. Come on. <laughs> But I was really blown away by this. So um, I think the heart of this this film lies in the contrast between the the two children whose performances you already praised. Yes. Um, so the younger sister Anna, mm. who, as I said, is has difficulty distinguishing between reality and fantasy, and has been enraptured by this this screening. Um, and her older sister Isabel. Yeah, who's who can best be uh, summarized when she describes the movies to. Uh, Anna as being fake, I think. Yes. So she's already progressed past the point of being able to distinguish between what's real and what's fiction. Yes. Um, so she's at a later stage of development. And I think the the main thing to say here is she's closer to the world of adults and yes. society at large than Anna is. She represents like a less magical and indeed crueler world. Um, we see her tormenting the, the family cat at one point. And she also takes advantage of her sister's naivety, not only by uh, spinning a tale about the spirits, but also playing dead at one point. Yes. Um, but I, so I think there is that that symbolism there between the two sisters, but it's not crude symbolism. Like the relationship between them still feels genuine and real. And they, they never they never feel reduced to symbols either. They both seem like real children. And speaking as someone who grew up with an elder. Uh, sibling, it it rang true to me. <laughs> Who would torture your cat? Not that my my sibling was was cruel like this particular sibling uh, is at times, um, but there is that stage where, in my case, my brother shows more characteristics of and more interest in the the grown up adult world mm. um, than I do. Abandoned you to your life of imaginary nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, you're, that bond is is threatened. That was that was so strong previously, or you res, you resent and fail to understand the increased maturity. Well, Hugh, I, I'm an older brother, so that's right. So you have the opposite perspective. I'm like you, stupid younger children. <laughs> I watched this movie, be like thinking that Isabel was the hero. And it's also interesting to contrast not just the two sisters, mm. but Anna and all the other adults we actually see in the movie, yes. like her family and the teacher in the classroom are the main other adult characters, in addition to, I guess, the the freedom fighter, who doesn't actually have a line of dialogue. No. Her, her closest connection to any other adult is really with the freedom fighter. Yeah, she brings him food and her father's coat and stuff. Yeah, and he, he responds with some kindness by showing her a magic trick. Yes. But, like, the parents are, are very much removed and remote. Yeah. Um, not only from each other, but from their daughters as well. We do get sort of one sequence where the, the father is bonding with, with his daughters when they're collecting mushrooms, but that's about it. Yeah. And we never really learn what their professions are or really anything about their interior, except for, like, brief, uh, glimpse, sort of stolen private moments. For the most part, it unfolds through Anna's perspective. But there are moments where it breaks away, even if it doesn't break the tone and the atmosphere of the film. Yes. To reveal pieces. And, and in fact, those pieces do feel like stuff that might be 
overheard or misread or like fragments of a of a child's understanding of their parents, which is just like sort of you know you you get glimpses of their private life through these gestures as opposed to like you know understanding who they are really. Um, and I think I think this is where the the political background comes through, albeit somewhat obliquely. Both the parents uh, seem to have been impacted by the civil war. Yeah. And it's it's brought them to this point where they still haven't been able to recover, and that's why they're so remote and removed. So the mother is writing love letters to her lover who who she lost through the war, and presumably remarried this older man, or just married him alternatively. And he, in turn, is struggling to write about the bees that he keeps yeah. um, in terms that could be applied to the fascist society. The fascist society, yeah. But yeah, it is. You're right. Like it is. We only glimpse that as a child might. It's not explicated beyond that. It's just like there's there's something removed. No, and which is perhaps why this film was able to get past the censors. Yes. Well, it's it's interesting. I, I looked at some of the stuff about that, and the reason, the largely the reason that it got past the censors is because they thought uh, it was so obscure and uh, unwatchable <laughs> that no one would watch it. Basically, that's how it got through. That's yeah, that's a that's a point in favor of uh, symbolic art, you know. Yeah, well, they they didn't like, for example, it wasn't so much that they were looking to censor specific elements of the film. No. Um, so much as they were considering banning it entirely, and then they just decided it doesn't really matter. There's nothing much here. No one's going to watch it. And then, and then Franco stopped being president anyway. So I think even in the report they called it intellectually ponderous. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that's basically how it ended up getting through. Well, I just wanted that the film that won an award at a Spanish film festival called the, called the San Sebastian Film Festival, the year after this was uh, Terrence Malick's Badlands. So there must have been something to the air there. There you go. Though it does not have his proclivity for voiceover, so in that way it's even more obscure than his films can be. But it certainly shares his uh, proclivity for uh, magic hour photography. For sure. This film, like, exclusively takes place... Uh, either in dusk, yes, uh, which is for the most part where it's set, or sometimes at dawn. Well, there are some nighttime sequences too. Yeah, that's true. And uh, if you read anything about this film, you'll come across numerous critics mm. refer to the quality of the light as honeyed. Yeah, obviously. But that's that. I, I, nothing that uh, struck me. But okay, whatever. <laughs> That is what struck me, and then I was disappointed to find every single person say the same thing. Well, I, I never, I never, I didn't get that at all because I'm not, a, I'm not a moron, I guess. Because <laughs> I feel like, I feel like the the predominant like tone I got was was. I mean, I guess this is especially applicable during the OPC, which is more overcast, you know. So one thing that I wasn't sure about mm. when I first watched it was the uh, sequence in which the quote-unquote fantasy sequence in which um, Anna has an interaction with Frankenstein that mirrors the one that happens in the film. Yes, and we should say the Frankenstein they watch is the... Um, the directed by... The James Whale yeah. original yeah. Frankenstein. Um, so there's, a, there's kind of a funny story with this. So originally they were planning to make a genre film version of Frankenstein, mm. and then they realised that on the budget they would be permitted um it wouldn't be possible so mm. they sort of changed the focus a little bit so originally this was going to be a frankenstein story that's funny and then for the sequence that actually surfaces in this film where we see a representation of a frankenstein character appear before anna mm -hmm. um they actually tried to get boris karloff uh, that's amazing um and then they couldn't do that and then um, 
the funny thing was what the what what first struck me upon watching it was that it was the father dressed up as Frankenstein. Yeah, so did I. That was an odd ass I thought, but and apparently it isn't the father. It's just someone a double they got. Presumably it, it is supposed to be makeup to resemble him, but maybe not. Uh, that's not what anyone says, but that's what I that's what I oh. thought when I watched. That's definitely the takeaway I got as well. So yeah, it's, apparently it was just supposed to be the best they could do. Uh, for a Frankenstein standing that looked like Boris Karloff. The writer, the co-writer, said that he told Victor Arise not to show like a, a front-on shot of the Frankenstein because it wasn't Boris Karloff and that it would kind of ruin the scene a little bit and take you out of it. And I kind of tend to agree mm-hmm. if it wasn't supposed to be the father. Mm-hmm. That that kind of was a little bit jarring. I think that's the, if that's the association that we both made, then that's a valid reading of the film text, right? Independent of what they intended. Yeah, I suppose so. So, but that, but if that's if that wasn't what was intended, then I guess it was a mistake in in the way they executed it. You know. What yeah, I mean? but why does that matter? We can't say it's a mistake in terms of the final text. It's whatever it is. But but I, it's fine. So that was the only thing that uh, I had questions about that I'm not sure, sure was entirely successful and may and I kind of agree with the screenwriter that it may have worked better if it was more suggested. Maybe. And you saw that it was clearly a Frankenstein figure, like from the back and the side of his face or something. But you didn't need to get like a full on shot. But I kind of like the idea that it is the father, so I'll keep that interpretation to myself. Yeah. I think I just really like films about children that sort of try to take children's perspective. This Zazi house, you know, Days of Heaven. I think it can be really, really, a really effective way of telling a story. Yeah, because it lets you sort of disrupt typical, um, you know, narrative threads by placing them in a uh, perspective that otherwise, you know, or allows you to alienate yourself from the from the story a bit. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it seems like I could have described this film as haunted, but I think it allows to get that sort of like magical quality that the, the film is going for. I mean, I, I, I thought this was really beautiful. Maybe you want to watch his other two films. Yeah, me too. And some more background details. So the little girl who played Anna, who was also called Anna. Well, but all the other main cast members are uh, have the same names as the people who play them. I, I think primarily that was to make it easier for the child actors. Mm. So the interesting thing is Victor Arise acknowledges the fact that she informed a lot of the way that character is presented. And in fact, um, she herself had confusion between reality and fiction in terms of Frankenstein. And the... The sequence in which she's watching the film with other children was essentially captured as it actually happened in real life. That's interesting. And that was her genuine reaction to those sequences. Wow. So I was watching some of the interviews with him mm-hmm. about it. There's actually quite a good one that he did with uh, a, a Japanese documentary. Mm-hmm. And um, he talked about the fact that the little girl, Anna Torrent is her actual name, right? Uh, Anna Torrent, yeah. She was at that that stage of her development where she really wanted to assert herself and assert her personality. And the role was kind of important to her. And she, like, learned all her lines and also learned all the other actors' lines and stuff, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it goes towards the, the final line of the film where she's trying to summon the spirit by saying, it's me, Anna. And it's like this self-affirmation moment. Um, which sort of ties together that that early stage where you really try to work out who you are, yeah, and what your role is within this world and stuff. So it's interesting to viewer sort of a um, allegorical figure for like the Spanish state as a whole, I guess. You know, yeah, I've read I've read a few things where they contrasted her with her sister on the along those lines as well, 
which seemed a little bit boring. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely something that occurred to me when I was watching it, you know? That's the sort of thing where you hope, like, even if that's there, you hope it's not just that. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely not just that, you know what I mean? And I don't think it is, no. I think it's borne out as, as more than that. And I, th- I, think that's sort of, and I think that's sort of, like, a, a thread that you can read also in attachment to, the, like, the Resistance Fighter 2. Where sort of Anne is, like, his, not his heir necessarily, but there's definitely like a connection that's, like, between them. All right. So, uh, shall we bounce to the next topic? Let's bounce. Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza, lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a police story, dig them fights. So I dominated last week, so I think we should begin with uh, your perspectives on pizza. Well, Hugh, I had two pizza experiences this week. Two? Wow. Neither of them were extraordinary. Both were simply adequate. Tell us more. For the first pizza, which is on Thursday, last Thursday, Mm -hmm. uh, I did not feel like making dinner. My girlfriend was away at the time, and so I had to make gin for myself. Instead of um, making a complicated meal, I made myself a frozen pizza from... Trader Joe's that had some peppers, some pepperoni, maybe some onions, cheese definitely, tomato sauce, and sausage on it. You know what, Hugh? It was adequate. You live in one of the best pizza cities in the world, and yet you're eating frozen Trader Joe's pizza? What's going on, man? Hugh, my job, it's innervating, okay? After I get get off, I just want to come home and do nothing. Hmm. So... I don't want to go look at some random pizza restaurant. The place where I live is not close to any good pizza restaurants right now. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So, why don't you take that fucking pizza elitism and shove it up your ass? <laughs> my second story is that um, my roommate came home on last Friday. She'd been away for about a month. And in celebration of her returning, and caught you. we ordered Domino's at her request. Wow. So I mean, I'm sure it's much better than the one here. But it's 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 it was not great. And it was pizza. That's my two pizza stories, you. Cool. What about you? You had any pizza experiences in the last week? I have. I've, I've eaten a lot of pizza in the last week. Wow. It's all been homemade or semi-homemade. Are you in uh, trying to perfect your recipe? Well, it's, there's there's not. It's 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 as perfect as it can be with the base that I'm using. Mm-hmm. So if I if I want to step it up, I'll have to make my own base, which uh, I don't I don't particularly like working with dough and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that might be a while off, or at least when I have my own place, I might do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried a different dough, so I've had it for four nights running. Uh, I tried a different pre-made base because it was on sale mm-hmm. um, for the last pizza I had last night, mm-hmm. and it was completely off. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't like off. It wasn't like a moldy piece of. Yeah, I got it. It was just it was just wrong. But it was wrong. Yeah, it it just it disrupted the the union that I perfected. Mm. It didn't have the same effect of uh, recalling the New York slice that I covet. That's my pizza story. You didn't have your Proustian Madeline moment. That's right. Like back in the days when we were on. Um, uh, was it Taff Avenue, Taff Street? Taffy Place. Taffy Place. Yeah, oh my God, dude, you don't remember anything. I've been, I've been picking up the slack for you all, all episode. When we were on Taffy Place, 
We used to go down to that uh, pizza place. Dollar pizza place. And then after you left New York, they upped the price up to $2 a slice. And I only went there one more time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then... That was pretty. That was actually pretty good then, slice. Then, there's also that great story of us going uh, in Brooklyn, wandering around before a the Flop House. Or was it before the Flop House? Yes, I think so. And we went into a dollar pizza place and we were discussing how much... We discussed the opening of, of Louie while eating dollar pizza. Yeah, he never heard of And then the news broke that he had been canceled by culture. And that was that was great. Well, we what, did that happen while we were eating pizza. Yeah, because you were talking. We were talking about the opening bit and, and Louie were eating. Holds the piece of pizza and, and eats it. Yeah, and and then you're like, I've been to that pizza place, and we looked on the, the news, the Twitter, and one had <laughs> that New York Times story had been published, and then we and then we watched the trailer for I Love You, Daddy. <laughs> How do you know this? One of my cherished memories, you. Uh, anyway, where where are we? <laughs> We're going to talk about two Abbas Karastami films. Oh, is it Project Time? Project Time. It's Project Time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Iranian new wave. is about a man and what is he doing you he's driving about he's driving around he's trying to in his automobile yes what is he trying to do in that automobile his baby beside him at the wheel yes what is he trying to do in that automobile you kill himself that's correct right on all accounts he's trying to pick someone up off the street or to help him with a very specific job that job is burying himself or burn, or rather, checking to make sure if he has or has not killed himself, and if he has, putting dirt onto his body. He so yeah, he intends to go to some uh, location, dig himself a grave, lie in it, and then someone else is going to come along and go in the morning and see if he's there and dead. Yeah, and take the appropriate course of action. If he is, he's to put twenty spadefuls of dirt onto his body. Mm-hmm. If not, he's to shout his name and then. Either way, he's going to get paid. Get that sweet coin. Both of the movies we watched today, or both the Karasai films we watched today, essentially films composed of vignettes. Vignettes about driving around. Indeed. I mean, ten, 10 especially, but this this to some extent. Ten, 10 is more explicitly vignette but Ace of Cherry is essentially um, all the sort of interactions this the film has, all the, all the narrative juice, all the, all the juice it has, period, are... Between uh, this character's name is Mr. Body, right? Mm-hmm. And various people he picks up and, and, and attempts to convince to perform this job for him. Um, there are essentially three main encounters he has. All, all men. Uh, a young Kurdish soldier. 
a seminarian from Afghanistan, and then sort of an older um, Turkish man who works at a at a natural history museum. Yes. And that's basically the entire film. <laughs> you've, you've already discussed this film on the podcast, but you've got to be honest, I have completely erased your opinion of it. I don't remember what I said specifically, and I'm not sure if I said very much, hmm. aside from saying that I liked it. Well, I, I say that I... So I be, if I need some of this film to be unengaging... I think overall, I, I thought this one was pretty pretty good. I mean, for due diligence's sake, I probably should have watched this film again. I, I wonder if my opinion of this would change after having seen certainly Life and Nothing More, mm. which has a similar formal framework to this. Yes. That film does have a more rambly quality. Mm. It didn't quite feel quite as um, uh, diagrammatic, I guess. So I put it. Perhaps I liked it a bit more. Um, but I think this film has some incredibly be- beautiful photography. Not that that's necessarily evident in the version that's on the Criterion channel, which is pretty muddy and blurry in parts. And I, I enjoy this sort of this sort of questy narrative of this, which is very much like it's a it's a, another sort of existential film. We talk about a lot of existential films in this show. It's a pretty common uh, art thing in that it, it re- really reminds me of this sort of opening question that opens... Um, Camus, uh, the myth of Sisyphus, which is why not kill yourself? <laughs> and I do. I did, I think this film is is interesting for how it focuses on sort of the outcast of uh, Iranian society. It's pretty much all the characters, except for the the titular man. Not the titular man. What am I even talking about? The main character uh, are like of, of different ethnic groups than. Like the the type that typically occupies um, Iran, but I think I think his face is what gives this film its strongest quality because mm. it is such a it's such a wonderfully sunken and haunted face. It's certainly a face that has a lot of heavy lifting to do in the context of the way this film is put together. This, this film offers you all, it gives you almost no character information about Mister Body except for that he wants to die and that he was in the army. That's pretty much it. But the, those gaps are pretty masterfully filled, and it's one of the best. Like sort of, I mean, this, the the actor's name is uh, Hoyam. Oh, <laughs> I should have whatever to ask this for this. Hamayim Ershadi. Oh yeah, Jan Ershadi. Yes. Um, it's just it's one of the greatest non-professional actor or performances that I've seen. I think. I think he's really great. He has a very memorable face. His his eyes, especially, are just they bore into your soul. And I think that's what this get, which which what elevates this film over what I feel like. In a, if a other actor had taken this role, I would have felt about it. Now, the most controversial part of this film, I feel, is its ending, in which the uh, fourth wall is suddenly shattered and we get a behind-the-scenes look at Kiristami... Yeah, making the film. ...filming the film, and we actually never get the... The resolution, answer yeah. ...as to whether uh, the central character, Barty, has actually committed suicide or not. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if the film gives up at that point and says, we, we can't reveal that. What did you think of that? Do you think that worked as a strategy? The, the, the title refers to uh, um, the speech that the, the Turkish man gives to, to Body, where essentially he's, he's enumerating the reasons why he should not kill himself, because he himself had, you know, attempted suicide or was going to commit suicide years ago and, and decided not to. 
Um, and he said to enumerate sort of the small pleasures of life, the things that, you know, do you really want to live without the taste of cherries is the one that mm-hmm. gives the film the title. I feel like that is sort of Karasami presenting his own, you know, his own version of his of his reason to live. You know what I mean? Which is, you know, this, this beauty of this landscape and the ability to make films and have this sort of communal set atmosphere. And he's sort of sharing with you, the audience, that that the joy that comes from making movies in this way, you know? I think there's numerous ways you could interpret it. Um, that's not one That's not one interpretation that actually occurred mm. to me, but I think it's interesting and plausible. Mm. Um, it felt to me like there's a couple of things going on. So the first of all, it could be Kiristami saying the outcome of this person's journey is not what's important here. No. And I'm going to emphasise that point by completely shattering any illusion mm that that is what this film was about mm. and, and i mean that's that's someone in keeping with the techniques that he's shown in the films we've watched previously for this podcast where he consistently elides the expected ending yes and this seems like a radical version of that mm-hmm. but you could also look at it in the sense of like not so much saying that the joy of life is in creating narratives and storytelling and filmmaking and that being a joy in and of itself but also saying there are limitations to what art can actually do. And I'm saying here that I don't have the answer to the questions this film is raising. Mm. So it could either be the answer to the question or the question continues. Is unanswerable. Mm. And I, I think it works. Like, in a way that I, I don't think either of us found the ending of Through the Olive Trees that satisfactory. Yeah, the ambiguity there. But I think this one actually does make you think in a rewarding way, even if you can have drastically different interpretations like we both have. For sure, for sure. Um, And I think that is evidence of it being a more valid and interesting ending, I think. Yeah, I agree. Even if he's, like, done similar sort of formal things in the past. Let's say I found this film... Maybe maybe if we haven't watched a bunch of his films in a row like this, I would have appreciated some of the, the, you know, (laughs) the Karastami aspects of it a little bit more, you know? Hmm. But it did seem sort of like, I was like, okay, he's going to drive around in the car and talk to people. Yada, yada, you know? <laughs> not, to, not to, like, detract from the film, but, you know? But, I mean, I, I know what you mean, because that's why I think maybe my opinion would, would have changed um, had I seen Life and Nothing more before this. Because it does, it does sort of seem like he's, he's following his own formulas to a bit, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, and I think this film does contain images of really astounding beauty. And I also think, although yeah, although he has trodden uh, similar formal ground in the past, hmm. the form of this, at least structuring it around this car journey, seems really appropriate to the subject matter. Yeah, for sure. It's like this sort of like searching character. Yeah, I, it, it's so hard to tell to make a, what to make of him, you know, because is he looking for someone to actually perform this act, or is he looking for someone to? to, you know, like, disavow it, you know. Mm. At some points it seems like the former, and some points it's like the latter, too. And he's arguing with the, the seminarian about his desire to do this, you know, versus the how, that, how it's played against the, with the, the natural history guy. And overall, uh, leaving aside the ending for a moment, mm. this feels more like a hopeful film about suicide than it does a hopeless film about suicide. That's true. Because um, as anyone who has had any experience with anyone um, contemplating suicide, mm-hmm. as we, we both may have had, mm-hmm. you know that it's a positive sign that there is any question yeah. 
um, of whether to do it or not. Yeah. So if someone is, is approaching you and talking about the fact that they've had suicidal thoughts, that in itself is a positive sign of there still being a remaining desire to live. For sure. And that, that the whole film is that, is, is his search. Even though he, he seems to have made up his mind and he is trying to recruit someone to assist him, mm. even that feels um, a step shy of someone who is literally about to do mm. it, you know, who's already entered that phase. Mm. But, yeah, I don't think... I don't consider it, like, a hopeless film. No, me and neither. There is something. there is something life-affirming about it. Yeah, and, the, and I think the ending wins, it, it wins itself to... To that too you can read it as him saying that you know art can ask these questions and allow you to explore these pathways that yes you know, otherwise would be depressing and impossible for you to to you know within the framework of your own life you're you're allowed to do this and it's okay to acknowledge that it's it's art it, it's a narrative that you're experiencing as opposed to just accepting it as like uh, uh, an illusion you know hmm. like even though it is an illusion you can still work through it it still has value you know what i mean but i do i do i do like this film also for sort of uh if if Kurosawa's other films sort of have this like willingness to to push a little against like the authoritarian state i feel like this and the other film we're gonna talk about are more explicit in their like dealing with like the others the like you know darker elements of iranian society mm. um and i i, I also i i really I think it's really interesting how this film sort of opens with this sort of uh, intimation of like, I don't know, like you're almost not sure how to approach this uh, Mr. Body. And I feel like the, the part of that is like, you know, he, come, he comes across as like someone who might be cruising for sex as well. Uh, and I think that, I think there's like a queer subtext that you could read into this as well. I also kind of like the fact that it seems like it seems in keeping with the storytelling tropes of a myth or something like it's the type of elemental story that you could find in the Bible or something like he's he's coming he's going along to various people getting their stories and asking if they'll go to his graves and see if he's alive and put you know 20 shovels of dirt and all that sort of stuff yeah it's interesting mix of like mythical and like neorealist strike traditions I think for sure uh, yeah, but that's all I remember of Taste of Cherry. Alright, so you go on to a film that you have actually watched recently, and that I watched earlier today. Yes. Ten vignettes in a car. Ten portraits of a car. Handsome people. So, Hugh, if Taste of Cherry was a film sort of built on vignettes, uh, and driving around a car, then Ten is a movie composed solely of vignettes and driving around in cars. In fact, the camera, <laughs> in this case, never leaves never leaves the car. Uh, th- this is probably a Kurosami distilled to his, his purest form, right? Yes. This film is composed entirely of static shots of people either being driven around or driving cars, having conversations. And that's it. <laughs> So yeah, this was this was Kurosami taking advantage of the uh, flourishing world of digital cameras in the early two thousands. Yeah. So he just mounted two digital cameras on the dashboard, yes. one facing the passenger and one facing the driver. Yeah. And the the film is solely composed of of those images, with one exception, uh, in which we see a shot through the, the front windscreen um, at a at a character entering a car. Yeah. I was surprised that he broke the formal boundaries t- 
to include that. But anyway, mm. we'll get to that. But yeah, so this film is it centers around uh, a woman, a woman, yeah. a woman. A woman. Uh, but I don't think she's named in the film, no. is she? None of the characters I think are named. I guess the son is. She's played by uh, Mania Akbari. Yes, who is herself a filmmaker. And she's the consistent character. Yes. Um, because it's her car and we see uh, the different passengers and different conversations with different people. We do. Um, but it's focused around around her. Maybe more more specifically focused around her and her relationship to her son, mm-hmm. who, who pops up and bookends the film um, and their, their fracturing relationship. So she has uh, divorced his father mm-hmm. and remarried. And uh, it, it, the kid's not happy about it. He's a bit of a little shit. Yeah, he is. <laughs> so they have uh, quite intense arguments. The point where I, I thought him it was uh, uh, actively annoying. Yeah, he was annoying. But but convincing, because it's her actual son, right? Yeah. I mean, it was convincing by the same time. I'm like, do I really... Are you, maybe it was just because I spent all my day with annoying, annoying children, but... <laughs> It definitely detracted from this movie in my mind that he was so annoying. Right. You know, I, do, I completely agree that it's realistic, but instead I'm like, I don't want to fucking watch <laughs> a toy child. So yeah, so like it was. I mean, it's not it's not a nonfiction film. No. But there was a lot of improvisation and a lot of incorporation of of the actors' yes. uh, real yeah, real lives. Uh, experiences. Yeah. But yes, yeah, certainly a lot of the uh, interactions between. Mani Akbari and her son feel true to life. Yeah, they do. Um, but she also has uh, exchanges with a prostitute she does. that she picks up. Not not to fuck, but just, just to give a lift to. And um, some women travelling to a mausoleum to pray and uh, her sister and a friend. And it's just broken into ten chunks. Yeah, ten, yeah, sort of vignettes, as he described, as I said. Over and over again. And that's the film. So, Hugh, was it a 10 out of 10? <laughs> How many vignettes out of 10? Yeah. Did you like it? Um, I like some of the segments. How many of the 10? <laughs> Specifically. I can tell you. But uh, I did find this to be pretty hard to watch, actually. I frequently found my, my, my mind uh, going elsewhere and the allure of going on my cell phone to be extremely high. Um, I do think there are some really hypnotic parts, but I feel that, you know, as sometimes is the case, more experimental works that uh, are experimental in that they try your patience. Uh, I found this to be somewhat frustrating of a watch. Uh, now this is going to be the time where you're like, this is, this is the masterpiece and I loved it. Uh, so go on. Did you enjoy the quality of the video stream on YouTube? <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't watch it on YouTube. So oh, you didn't watch it on YouTube, damn. But it's not, it's not, it's not like the video itself is that high, high. You know, as I already said to you, the quality of the um, the YouTube stream was real player era porn. <laughs> uh, and there was even like a watermark of so wherever this this stream was from at the top of the screen That's the whole great. time. Oh my god! And it was like it was so low quality that sometimes you could barely read the subtitles. <laughs> That's how it was. But I was like, if any film can stand up to this, it's it's this film, which was shot on shitty yeah. shitty digital cameras that were just pointing in the same direction yeah. the whole time. Um, okay, so I, I kind of agree with you. Mm. It does try your patience a bit. 
especially because it's divided into 10. I, yeah. I don't know if this was just on my stream, but are there those silly like 10 swirly interest titles? Yeah, there were in the in the thing that, in the version that I watched it had them. I was wondering if that was an addition to mine because it looked kind of dodgy. Yeah, I was like I feel like, I feel like this film would be better if it didn't have those those like countdowns. It, and it also annoyed me because it made it feel longer yeah, it did. because you're like, "Oh, I'm still on number 7." Ah, oh, it's got six more vignettes. Good. <laughs> He's driving around doing nothing. Goddamn! Why is this movie over yet? And I don't think it added anything. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you could have you could have called it ten, and it could have been split into ten as it is. Yeah, and still have the same effect. It could have just faded to black or something. I don't know. Yeah, it didn't need to have these kind of silly ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three movie themed titles that look like they were in yeah. iMovie circa two thousand two. No. Um, but anyway, that's that. That aside, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily. Um, detract from the I mean, experience. I think it does. I don't, I don't know what you mean. I, I mean. It does definitely detract. I mean, significantly. Yeah. Sure. So, look, as a formal experiment, I think this is a success on some levels. Yeah. So, there's that, the structure, the performances, that central device. I think it works effectively for what he's trying mm-hmm. to do. Like, leaving aside the, the fact that it does try your patience a little mm-hmm. bit. It is short, it I should is. say. It's still only, like, 90 minutes. Yeah. But, yeah. It's not his most engaging work. Or entertaining work. No. It's interesting. Of the films of his is what we've watched, except for maybe um, Where's the Princess, this is the one that, like, most... Or, or it doesn't feature any, like, elements of metafiction or, like, breaking the fourth wall at all. Which is interesting. Except for in, the, like, the experimental conceit. But, you know, besides that. But it's not really, it's not really in the text. No. Um, but, yeah, so what I was saying is I think where this film falls down is in the overt integration of social commentary, mm. which I think is sometimes Kiristami's weakness. Not the fact that the social commentary is there, mm-hmm. but the way he integrates mm. it is um, sometimes a little bit clumsy, I think. Yeah. So some of the social commentary definitely works, um, especially when it comes through organically. Like the, the early scene where she's having this heated argument with her son about the fact that she divorced her husband and had to say that he was uh, he was taking drugs in order to secure the divorce. And the way she sort of justifies that um, because, you know, women don't have any standing in Iranian society that allows them yeah. to uh, divorce just for their own, for their own sake. Um, that feels to me like organic and well-integrated and makes you think about those issues, And it, but it doesn't feel like it's been sort of shoehorned in. No. But I think there's some later scenes where it's not so elegantly integrated. The long discussion with the prostitute felt a bit forced to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the film suffers as a result. I did like the I did ha- I like how sort of daring it is to include that scene, but I also agree that it's a little like like yeah, I agree. I like the fact that that's in there. It's not like it could have been executed better. I agree. Yeah. But, so this is something that's, that sometimes does crop up in Kiristami's work. Um, going back to Where is the Friend's Home, which you mentioned, um, there is that sequence where uh, the grandfather has a discussion about yeah, beauty and um, young people today and all that sort of stuff, which it, it detracted a little bit, I think, from that mm. film. It felt a little forced. Yeah. But, and, yeah, and I think that sometimes crops up in his work. Uh, I can't remember Taste of Cherry that well as to whether it does, and you might be able to pick that up there. But uh, I mean, I feel like the social commentary is a little more organically integrated than that, you know? Because hmm. he's, like, sort of... What commentary there is is, like, you know, the people he interacts with are all, like, sort of, you know... Again, they're, like, people who are on the fringes of Iranian society. 
like these various ethnic groups and, and such. And I think just the fact of having their stories and integrating them into the film is like sort of in itself a political gesture, right? Yes, yes. But I think I feel like that it, I think I think it's pretty well done there. You can almost read it as like an Iranian man like looking at you know these other cultures and asking himself why he should continue to live in Iran, Iran right? <laughs> um, but anyway, um, and I guess there is the, the I mean you could take the opposite point of view and say sometimes you do have to be explicit about stuff, explicit, yeah, especially if if th- those issues are ongoing and you want to speak out against them, yeah. But yeah, um, but yeah, nonetheless, that was probably my main criticism. Uh, against this film, but I, but I really, I thought the 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 second segment with the like the woman who's her friend was probably my favorite part of the entire film, and that also features like some pretty like you know explicit like political stuff, I guess. I yeah, I think the most affecting moment of this film for me mm. was when uh, towards so towards the end she has she has gone through uh, she's had difficulty with um, the man she was in yes. a relationship with or interested in. And uh, their relationship falls through. Mm-hmm. And then we see her at the end and she's decided to have uh, a haircut and shave her, her head really, with a really close-cut shave. Yeah. And... Um, it's a really incredibly powerful moment. Uh, the driver gets her to reveal her, her head, head for us. Yeah. I thought that was, that was really moving. Yeah, me too. It's sort of the symbol of, like, asserting her bodily autom- autonomy, you know? Yeah. In the in the face of like both like the sort of like interpersonal disaster and also like the larger societal restrictions about doing stuff like that, uh, yeah, that's just, it's such a great uh, moment in this film. But I really didn't like. I I, I just found the job to be so annoying. <laughs> Which isn't like it's not like fair to the film really because obviously he's intended to be kind of annoying. But I was like, I just don't want to watch this child anymore, you know. Yeah, I, found, I didn't find that story. Like, I liked the fact that it was there. It was just sad. It's, like, sad, because imagine if, like, you were that kid's parent. Yeah, and, I, I'm, and not gonna imagine, I'm not going to be a parent, so I don't have to attach <laughs> myself as such. Um, so if we, t- if we talk about this as, like, a cinema verite film, which is, I guess it is aggressively so, but mm. with, like, a formalist conceit. Yeah, so it was kind of makes it... Because, I mean, the whole point of cinema verite is, like, to... To capture unguarded moments, right? Which this is, I mean, definitely a fictional film that is obviously, like, rigorous. I mean, as far as I know, like, rigorously, you know, created, right? But, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that for sure. Maybe I'll have to watch the documentary that he directed about making this film. Yeah, I'd be curious to watch that, actually. Um, yeah, so would I. Nothing feels more like living <laughs> than the, the banality of waiting in a car for someone. For sure. And I think that is captured well here because there are sequences where uh, people are waiting for the driver to mm. return to her car and, and they're just sort of sitting there staring out the window and that just felt really evocative to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I suppose more so than driving because I've never driven. <laughs> That's funny. But uh, definitely not my favourite of the songs, but definitely has uh, some moments worth recommending about it, for sure. So Yeah. So next week we're going to watch Certified Copy and um, Like Someone in Love, right? And then that'll be our Here's Tommy. We'll be all done. All right. So next is... Box Office. The Box Office. Oh, God. I forgot how to do this. Box Office Hooray. Box Office Hooray. 
box office box office so the number one film in Australia and America respectively is Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw You only have one bonus feature. It's a film I've already watched and talked about just a mere week or two ago. It's called Yukio Mishima's Patriotism, which I only watched because I learned that he had made a, Engl- a version in English, and I wanted to watch that. And I watched it. And that's it. Was it just an English dub or what? No. So the film features no dialogue at all, right? Yeah. The only text uh, comes in the form of these intertext uh, things that are written on like traditional scrolls, right? Mm-hmm. And the Japanese, because he, he filmed it in Japanese, French, and English, which he all of which he wrote himself. Because apparently, he's like had some degree of fluency in English. Um, and there's like talks that he was like, he, he, you know, he interviewed in English and stuff like that, and he gave like talks to like the Foreign Press Association and stuff like that in Japan. Um, but basically, the the various versions, because he it was intentionally trying to make this for like an international market, right? Hmm. Um, he made one in English and one in French and then in Japanese as well. But they all use sort of the same. Okay. I don't know. It all unfolds the same way. It's kind of a waste of time <laughs> for a film that I don't, <laughs> I don't, which I think is okay. So, have you seen the the Schrader film about him? No, I actually watched this in anticipation of watching this, watching that this week. Because I bought the Schrader film like two years ago on DVD, and I was like, I can't wait to watch this. And I was like. Like, I was about to put it in, and I was like, you know what? I don't know anything about Yukio Mishima. I should, probably should read some of his books and stuff before I do that. And then now I've read two of his books and uh, watched this short film. Both. Which books have you read? Uh, Confessions of a Mask and uh, Forbidding Colors. I, I think Mishima is a decent enough writer that I, I could enjoy getting more into him, I think. Hmm. But, I mean, even if his politics are somewhat dubious, but, I don't know. In some ways, he doesn't seem like a political writer at all. Because um, oftentimes, the, the sort of poses that he's he's sort of getting into are, like, erotic or, you know, like, metaphorical, as opposed to, like, something that, I mean, but which obviously corresponds poorly to, you know, real life. So, he is political, but he's also not, I don't know. It's weird. Okay. Um... And he also wrote a, a a play called My Friend Hitler, where he himself played Hitler in one of the productions. So like Jojo Rabbit, basically. I, I assume that it's not quite as uh, satirical as Jojo Rabbit is going to be, but maybe not. We'll see. So, uh, anyway, next. What did you watch? Uh, so I watched, as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival, In Fabric. Mm. Peter Strickland film mm-hmm. and it was presented at the screening by the cinematographer Ari Wagner, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name but she is from Melbourne yeah. so this is a film about a, uh, a killer dress so Peter Strickland makes sort of pastiche films I wouldn't want to limit them by saying they're pastiche films but they respond to prior genres and prior works. Yeah, a little. Like, yeah, Giallo and this this seems like Giallo as well as British horror mm. is in there also and British comedy. I've seen nothing that he's written or directed rather. I guess written too. 
know that you liked the Duke of Burgundy from Resource. I did, yes. I liked that a lot. Uh, I think at the time I, I may have called it a good version of Phantom Thread. Uh, Phantom Thread's a great film, so go fuck yourself. In the same way, In Fabric is like a good version of um, Velvet Buzzsaw or something. Mm. Velvet Buzzsaw, terrible film. Yeah. <laughs> you have my interest. So this is like, what if that was actually good? It's actually, it's almost like a, a, a better version of both Velvet Buzzsaw and The Love Witch. Mm. But it seems, you know how The Love Witch was a little bit mired in its formal fetishism of a past genre? Yeah. And didn't seem to find a way through that to something that was more interesting as a contemporary work. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Strickland kind of seems the opposite. This might be uh, maybe not the perfect comparison, but mm-hmm. you know how Guy Madden takes these old genres yeah, sort of and them to filters his own them in a really bizarre stability. Yeah, he doesn't feel like he's slavishly no. nostalgic to old. No, old he's more like and he's just big techniques and touches them. And then it almost his films are almost like almost about the impossibility of recreating these things too. Yes, so I, I don't think Peter Strickland is as extreme an example as as Guy Madden is of that, but I think he's closer to that well, than you he know, is. You know how much I love Guy Madden, so... Yeah, he's closer to that end where it seems like he's still got a really unique and interesting voice, and the main thing about Peter Strickland films is they're very entertaining mm. from the two I've seen. He also, he's always directed four films, so... The first feature film that he did, that uh, Hungarian language film... It's called Catalina Varga... That's the one set in, um, in Hungary or Transylvania rather, or in Romania rather. Yeah, so that was the one where he got a um, he got an inheritance from his mm. family because he was just a working teacher, yeah. and he was faced with the choice of either like buying himself a flat or going to <laughs> going to, <laughs> going going to, to Romania Transylvania movie. <laughs> a movie in Hungary in Hungarian. Yeah. <laughs> And it worked out for him. Yeah, so. the, the, the choice that all of us face whenever we come into any sort of amount of money. Yeah. So that was interesting. This is a very entertaining film. It's sort of bifurcated. Um, so it tells two stories, and the through line is this killer dress and this department store that it comes from. So there are recurring sort of side characters, but the, the central characters change halfway through. <laughs> and um, I guess that kind of works, but uh, I found the first story or at least the the characters in the first story more compelling than mm. the second half mm. which is only weakness but it's still very very compelling and very enjoyable okay. and quite funny as well so I, that's recommended i'll have to watch it when it comes out i, I definitely am interested in peter Shikud, but I, see, I mean i do love i'm kind of both wary and interested in them because uh you know i do love giallo films uh and mm. there has been some other like giallo you know like Pastiche or uh, like Neo Giallo films that I've watched and thought were really bad. So I think, yeah, to me, it feels like he transcends those sort of uh, limited attempts to recreate that aesthetic in the modern day. I think he doesn't feel like he's bound by them so much. Okay, uh, what else have you? What else have you gotten up to? The only other film I watched was Heat. Ah, finally, perfect masterpiece. I would not call it a perfect masterpiece. Mm, well. We're going to end this podcast right now. Um, I will say that it's very entertaining, uh, especially for a film that's nearly three hours long. It, it doesn't feel like a tedious three-hour movie. No. In fact, it feels like it should be a little longer. Yeah, it feels like it should be a, a there hundred hours. There are odd jumps so in. There feels like there's some, some strange jumps in continuity, yeah. and it feels like there's some pieces missing that uh, 
or it felt rushed in places like there was some compromise in the edit or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, Val Kilmer and John Voight look absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> That's true. But so, do, so does everyone in the movie to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Al Pacino puts in, I would say, a pretty terrible mm. performance. I think I think this is his last like, good performance, to be honest. Well, it's, it's I, think, I think he's played, a, I think he's played a pretty, like, you know... <laughs> It fits. It's not. It doesn't just feel like he's being intense for the sake of it being intense, you know, or just like activating that because that's the only thing he knows how to do now. Um, but it has been a bit since I've watched this, so maybe my memory is receded. Like he's okay for the most part. In some scenes, he <laughs> I don't. I don't know. You mean <laughs> what is that? What's the like? <laughs> yes. Also, De Niro doesn't seem all there. Oh, but that's that's his character too. I think. But yeah. I, this wasn't that interesting to me. We got the usual like shitty psychology and the parallels between the cop and his uh, criminal opposite. Yeah, it's, it's great. The usual disregard for women, but um, it does manage to transcend the rote cliches that it peddles in. I think at points, yeah. certainly. No. And the the final fight is is fun. <laughs> I think you just don't really care that much for Michael Mann. I don't really. So, but there I, you go. I mean, I, I like I like I do like him, but apparently, I don't apparently not. Him. So heat, that's heat. Do uh, you watch anything else? I watch nothing mm-hmm. else. Oh. Is it time for Drag on forever? I'll be fine. Drag on forever anytime. Uh-huh. Start. Okay, today's topic is uh Poetry as taught in high school. What? Yes. <laughs> well, if you're going to quiz you about this, the teaching I have of poetry say, in high school. I remember nothing about the poetry I read in high school. Oh, damn. I was relying on you remembering no, something. Sorry, buddy. Because <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of doing just poetry in general, but then I wanted to, to maybe narrow it down a well, bit more. And then I can save the topic of poetry in general, possibly for another sorry. one. Sorry. Uh, but anyway, that's the topic. We have to talk about it one way or another. We have to talk about the teaching of poetry in high school. Uh, I firstly want to complain about the way it was taught in my mm. high school. So I can't remember much poetry um, in the general school curriculum other than in my final year of high mm. school um, when I had a good teacher and I was studying literature specifically. But in the general sort of English courses I did prior to that point, I don't remember much poetry at mm, all. Neither do I. And I feel a bit hampered by that, and I wish I did have that experience. You know what? Uh, experience. I, don't, I don't care. I know you don't care. but uh, So my problem is the way, they, the way poetry is currently um, taught. Mm. I've got actually no idea how poetry is currently taught. Mm. I haven't been in the school system for a long time. That's true. So uh, I can only speak to my specific experience at my specific school. But um, there wasn't much poetry until I did this literature course. And even then, it wasn't taught... You weren't taught the things about poetry that uh, I think should be taught in the school environment, mm-hmm. which is the, the technical component of how, how to read and understand poetry mm-hmm. and the actual structure of poetry. Mm-hmm which is something I had to teach myself years later via helpful books such as Stephen Fry's The Ode Less Troubled. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's kind of a shame because that is the one environment where you do have the, a captive audience 
and you can explain something that otherwise is rather mystifying like why is so and so a good poet mm. what is this person doing because it's often not intuitive yeah, that's true you can understand like just the word like the words they've used and when it rhymes you can sort of understand that from a structural level but you don't understand the very particular verse forms you don't understand the structure within a line uh like iambic pentameter and all that sort of stuff I think that may have iambic pentameter probably came up a little bit because when yeah, you Shakespeare, yeah, it came up a bit in my English classes too. I think. Yeah, so it comes up with Shakespeare, but I still didn't. I obviously didn't obs- if it, if it was taught at all did you have to, did you in terms of what scan? iambic pentameter actually means. Did you ever, I had to do some scansion when I was in high school, but I took like advanced. English no classes. scansion, never had to but, do that. So can you explain that? How you had to well, do? Well, we we were just given like you know lines of. Of poetry, and you know, you identify the the long and the short syllables, right? Or where the emphasis is. That's basically it. I don't. I, I the long and the short syllables a, is not I English. Such a long time. I haven't done it in such a long time. The, I barely remember how to do it. The way the long and the short syllables thing is actually, I uh, with different languages. Maybe poetry, I'm thinking. Maybe like I'm thinking of my Latin. Italian, actually. It could be Latin. Yeah. But there's, there's like where the emphasis placed it on placed in in words, right? I don't know. Yeah. So in English poetry, it's stress. Yeah. It's that's it's what I divided by stress. Whereas in Italian poetry, it's divided by the the length of the vowels, and probably Latin poetry as mm. well. Yeah. Like long short, long yeah, short, yeah, long yeah. short, or whatever. I think I think Dante's Inferno <sighs> sort of has has a, p- a pattern around the the length of. Um, yeah, there's the cock. And maybe French as well. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, English English is definitely stress accented, and there's metrical feet mm. that have a stressed beat and an unstressed beat within that foot. Mm. All that sort of stuff that I've like eventually learnt. Mm. I wish that that was part of my high school education. It was part of mine apparently, but um, I did not internalize it. So part of yours, yeah. So that's that's what I feel is a shame, um, and. Uh, but you've often pined after the fact that you. You wish you had a classical uh, education, so yes. Whereas I, yes, I wish I was. Do forced. not wish that. So <laughs> I wish I was forced to learn Latin and read some more of these. Classical <laughs> you basically works. you watch Lindsay Anderson's F, and you're like, I wish that was me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you remember which poets you studied? No, I remember the all? only poets I wrote. Oh, that's time. <laughs> <laughs>